And we'll start in verse 13 in just a minute. And this is our last message in the book of James um, for this semester. And we talked last week about how there were these poor Christians that were being oppressed in this area of the world. And they're being oppressed by rich unbelievers. So you have poor Christians being oppressed by rich unbelievers. And last week's passage, James encourages them to suffer with patience. Now, suffering with patience does not mean that you just sit there and twiddle your thumbs and just wait. It means that you pray. It's okay uh, to pray while you suffer patiently. It's actually even okay to pray that the suffering stops. And so in today's passage... James is talking a lot about prayer. This is a, a, a section that just has prayer throughout the entire section. James chapter 5, looking at verse 13. He says, if any, is, anyone suffering, is, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. How many of you are more likely to pray when you're suffering? Raise your hand. You're more likely to go to God whenever you're in a time of suffering. That should be, I think, all of us. You and I, I think we, we just pray more when we suffer. I think human nature is that we just, we, we tend to pray more and go to God more when we're suffering. I think this is true even of somebody who's not even a believer. They tend to call on the name of God more when they're in the midst of suffering. There's an old saying, an old wartime saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. There's no atheists in foxholes, right? Because when you're in the middle of conflict, the middle of battle, it's, it's hard to not believe in something that's beyond yourself. So suffering often can fuel our prayer life. And, but James tells us here, he says, no matter what happens to us, whether it's good things or bad things, you and I should bring this to God. So whether it's prayer or praise, we should bring these things to God. Now, most of the time, like you, I pray more when I'm worried, stressed out, and anxious. That's just what I think most of us do. But James is encouraging people here to praise God. You still turn to God even when things are good through praise. And this is where I struggle. I I forget to thank Him whenever um, things are going well. So last week, you may have seen the Facebook update on this, but last week uh, Gary um, just put on Facebook, our, our senior pastor Gary who has had eye cancer, um, they took the eye out, and now there's, there's like this high risk that the cancer could go somewhere else in his body at some point within five years of his first diagnosis. So far, good news. But every six months, he'll put out on Facebook, hey, I'm going for another, uh, another scan. Be praying for me for, clear, for a clear scan. Or if the result's bad, pray for me as well. And he put this out on Facebook, and he also texted the staff and said, hey, so as soon as I get the text message, I instantly become anxious, just like I'm sure he is. And I start praying. I start praying, God, just, we pray for clear scans for Gary DeSalvo. And for about 24 hours, I think as a staff and as a church, we're just waiting for the news. And it's difficult, just like it is for him. And then the moment that we get good news, I'm driving down the road, I see a text like, hey, clear scan. I'm like, yes. And next thing, I'm like, wait, did I, did I thank God for that? Did I pray and thank Him for what I just prayed for for the last 24 hours? And I think you and I do this. We tend to, in suffering, we tend to pray more, pray more fervently. But when we get good news and there's a reason to praise Him, we tend to not turn to Him 
whenever things are going well. So how often do you, do you and I think about praising God in these kinds of situations? When I was in college, I was going through a really difficult time about the middle of college, and I found myself in the Psalms a lot. I'm not sure why, but I found myself in the Psalms quite a bit. I was reading the Psalms, and I noticed how David would just go out, and he would just write these Psalms, these beautiful uh, hymns of praise to God. And the Bible talks about David being a harp player, right? David played the harp. Now, if you're a young man in the room and you think that that's not manly, okay, um, David also killed a bunch of people. He did. He, he, he knew how to throw down. So, um, so David was, I, I often call it, David was like a ladies' man, but also a man's man. He was like a combination, like perfect combination of both. He was the, the football player who, was, who could take someone out, but also the guy who was like writing poetry and stuff. And all the girls are like, that's like the perfect man you just described right there, right? So this is David. This is David. So, um, so uh, David would go out and he'd play his harp. He'd play his harp to God. And he'd write these hymns of praise to God. And I am not naturally musical. I'm not naturally musical at all. But I had some friends that could play the guitar. These are the kind of friends that would just walk into a room and they would just start playing their guitar annoyingly good, you know. And you're just like, stop it. Like, why are you always showing off that you can play the guitar? Um, we don't care, right? And, uh, but I started learning how to play the guitar. I just kind of taught myself a few chords. I can't play like the way these guys play, but just a few chords, right? It's not hard to play G, C, and D, okay? Um, so I would play a little bit, and I would, I would just go out to these parks where I lived, and I would just, you know, read and pray and, and write, and I would just, just kind of play some songs to God, and it was a good thing I was by myself, Good thing I was alone. But this is what I would do, because I, I wanted this to be a reflection of praise, that when things are tough or things are good, like we need to be praising God in those situations. And I know whenever we do praise and worship with music in here, that I can look around the room and I can see some stone faces, and I get it, because there's something about worship that makes you feel a little bit manipulated, doesn't it? Like, you, if you're a guy, or even if you're a girl, it's just, you're just not into that. Like, you, you think that we're manipulating your emotions into something. And I understand how you might feel that way, but if you're someone who's intellectual or fairly serious in your personality, you might feel like worship and praise is something you don't like doing because you, you, you just don't like how it makes you feel. You, you feel like someone's messing with you. And... That might be the way you feel about it, but this is not manipulation. This is, there is something that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. There's something about worship and song and praise that we should get caught up in and kind of lost in. And that's okay. That's okay. That's the point of worship, I think. That's the point of praise. is to lose yourself and to get caught up in it and, and get lost in it for a bit. And if it feels like you're being manipulated, I think it's just the Holy Spirit trying to work and trying to lead you into worship. And praise should stir something in our hearts towards God. Praise should stir something in our hearts towards God. And as we talk about prayer this morning, I'm sure that many of you, if you're like me, 
when I hear the title of a talk is about prayer, I instantly just go, okay, I'm, I'm out. Like, this is going to be a guilt-ridden message um, telling me how bad I suck at life and how bad I am at prayer. And this is not the message I hope you get today, but I'm sure that many of you, when you first hear a talk on prayer, you start to feel convicted, guilty, maybe a little bit, a little shamed of just how weak we can be in our prayer lives. And I think often our response to hearing a talk like this can be one of two things. We either give up or we just go, okay, I got I to gotta try harder. I just got to make it happen. We either give or we just kind of go the other extreme work ethic mode. And I want to encourage you this morning with a quote I heard from an old professor um, when I was in grad school. And he said this. He said, why you pray will determine how you pray. So take a step back from just the two methods of giving up or just trying harder and think of prayer in, in, in terms of your motive. Why you pray will determine how you pray. And the problem is that most of us don't have any clue why we're supposed to pray or what we're praying about. We just know we're supposed to do it. So we just do it, and it's lifeless and joyless, and we have no idea why we're doing it. But why you pray will determine how you pray. So why you do something will determine how you do it. This is true of many things. When there's an urgency, you and I tend to pray more. The problem is, you and I only feel the urgency when crisis hits. We only feel the, the prayer urgency when something bad happens or crisis enters our life. And I think you and I need to feel the urgency a little bit more, spiritually speaking. I think if you and I were aware of the spiritual war that rages around us, I think you and I could dial in a bit more into our prayer lives. I really do believe that. I was, uh, I've been convicted over and over again about just how how much this distracts me, right? And um, if, if you just look at the, the nature of news, so the nature of news today is that you go on Facebook or any kind of social media platform that you may use, and you're just scrolling through, just looking at everything. And what I've been struck by recently is how you can read an article or see a news headline that's just horrific. One second. This past week, we got a text message from one of our, our, our pastoral uh, staff members, and there was a family, they didn't really know him personally, but a family over in the Ukraine that has a connection to some people that we know over there. This family, had, I think, had seven kids in the family or seven people in the family total, and a fire caught in their apartment, and everyone except for the father died. And I'm reading this. These are people that I don't know these people but we know people that know them, that know them. That kind of a connection. And they're just saying, hey, pray for these, this church and this family. And then I read that, and then I go to the next thing, and it's just like someone invited me to play Candy Crush. Right? Or something trivial and stupid. So I, I have to under, we have to understand that this, just the nature of media right now, we just so quickly go from horrific news, tragedy, to let me scroll to the next thing. I don't want to think about that. Let's scroll to the next thing. 
and it's something totally frivolous and trivial that makes no eternal difference, and yet it's a good distraction for what I just read. And I think this is how you and I tend to, to deal with things. We don't, want, we don't want to understand the spiritual war that's raging around us. We want to just focus on little goofy things that just make us feel um, desensitized. And so I think that you and I need to understand the urgency more in our prayer life and see things as a bigger deal than we currently do. You've heard of what a hypochondriac is, right? So a hypochondriac is someone who makes everything into a big deal. There's someone who is overly anxious about their health. I'm sure Dr. Eshbaugh can... You know, you know these kinds of people, right? They come in and they have a little um, issue and they just want to say, I, I think I have cancer. And you're like, no, you have something in your eye, okay? A piece of dirt, right? And so there's hypochondriacs that just overreact to everything physically. So I'm going to use a weird analogy this morning. I think that, that you and I need to be a bit more of like a spiritual hypochondriac where we see... We see things as a bigger deal than we currently do. We see things as a bigger deal than we currently do. So when someone tells you some, some tough news about their family, that you actually move into that a bit more and say, hey, how can I pray for that? How can I minister to you? How can I come alongside you? How can I be praying for you and, and putting you up in prayer? Versus just, okay, good luck with that. Let's move, let's move on to the next thing. So you and I, I think, need to be people who see things as a bigger deal than we currently do. But the bigger point in verse 13 is that no matter the circumstances, the response should always be prayer or should be praise. There's a response to God on both fronts. Look down at verse 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James encourages anyone, he says, if you're sick, call the elders. These are the church leaders, pastors, elders. And ask these, these elders to pray over them for healing. Now, this passage has a couple of strange things about it. The first thing is when you, when you read something like anoint him with oil, and you think, what in the world is he talking about? I just picture somebody just dumping pen's oil on someone's head, and, or olive oil, just, just dousing them. Why, why is he saying anoint their head with oil? And this is, what, this, what, this is just a tiny little bit of olive oil in that day. And there's nothing magical about it. This is not some magic juice. This is a symbol of the Holy Spirit's healing power. And it's a symbol of God's healing power in that person's life. So it's God who heals. It's not magic oil that heals. This is just a symbol of, of um, an inward reality. In fact, I've seen this act of elders coming and praying over someone. I go to an elders meeting at our church once a year. And in the last several years, I have seen this happen twice. Where our elders have had someone come into that meeting. They've invited someone in our church who is suffering to come into the meeting and to pray over them 
And they will take a little bit of oil and place it on the person's head as a symbol of Holy Spirit's power healing in their life. I've seen this happen twice. One was a baby who was born having multiple seizures a day. And the parents bring this baby in and and we're praying over this this infant to be healed. And this is a little, this is a young young boy now who goes to our church who is doing much much better as a result of God's healing and doctor's wisdom. Someone else came recently who doesn't even go to our church, but a boy who's a baseball player, who's a pitcher, he was pitching in a game, the ball hit him right in the head coming back at him, and because of a nerve issue in his eye, he lost his sight in one of his eyes. And so people that go here know him. They called and said, hey, can we pray for this young man? So this man and his family came to the elders of TBC and got prayed for, for healing, for God to heal him. I think he's only like 13, 14 years old. So I've seen this happen twice now at our church um, here at TBC. And so, um, so the elders of the church are to serve the body in this way. And so um, if you look at verse 15, though, verse 15 kind of has a strange element about it because he says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who was sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So it looks like in verse 15 that James is making this strange connection between people who suffer and people who sin. Now this is touchy. This is a little controversial because we know from other places in Scripture that we are cautioned to never assume because someone is suffering in a certain way that that means they have a specific sin that God's punishing them for. We see this in the book of Job. We don't see in Scripture that we're supposed to always jump to the conclusion that because someone's suffering in a certain way, that it's a result of a specific sin in their life. But sometimes a connection can be made. And James seems to imply that here. That sometimes there is a connection between sin and sickness. Not just the obvious things like STDs, but that sometimes... God might strike somebody with an illness because of a specific and particular sin that they are rebelling against God in. It's a scary thought. And we have to at least give that some credence because that's, that's somewhat biblical. That is biblical. Not always the case. But it is biblical. Look, in, look over on the screen here at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28-30. to 30. This is in relation to... Um, communion at church, in the church gathering. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So Paul is warning the Corinthians, he's saying, look, if you don't, if, if you take communion lightly and don't examine yourself, and aren't coming to the table in a worthy manner, God may do something in your life to shock you out of your apathy. This is a scary thought. That God, sometimes there's a connection between suffering and sin. So you and I are not to go around making assumptions about people. Because I've heard people talk about this where somebody gets struck with an illness 
and someone who is more um, prosperity gospel type of mentality might say, well, you know, they probably got sick because they were, you know, living and walking in sin. It's like, look, our job's not to go in and, and figure these connections out. We can't make assumptions, but we have to remember the backdrop of the letter of James is spiritually drifting, being double-minded, spiritual adultery. This is the background of James, and it's also the backdrop of his talk about prayer. And so as we think about prayer, I want us to think about um, a few things in relation to prayer. This is a guy named D.A. Carson, a blog he wrote on prayer. The first point he makes is that much praying is not done because we do not plan to pray. The problem that you and I have is we don't, we don't, we don't pray because we don't plan to pray. And this is me as much as, as it is you. Nothing happens by accident. I know a lot of us think, like, well, if I plan to pray, I mean, that's, isn't that kind of legalistic? This is how you and I tend to think. If I, if I plan to pray, if I plan spirituality, isn't that legalism? We don't want to be legalistic, do we? So is it legalistic if I go to my wife and I say, hey, um, weekend's coming up. I'm thinking that you and I need to have a date night. So let's plan to go Saturday to here and here, get a babysitter. Is that legalistic? Does she look at me and say, Dave, I mean, planning dates, so legalistic. Like, let's just let it happen spontaneously. Let a babysitter just arrive miraculously at our front door and just, we'll just decide to go. Like, you would, that's foolish. You and I plan to work out, at least some, we plan to work out sometimes. Is it legalistic to make a plan and say, I'm going to go do this and this? No. So it's not wrong that you plan when and where you're going to do these things. He also says, Adopt practical ways to prevent mental drift. This is so hard. This is so difficult. Which is why I highly encourage you to implement the impact rule during your prayer time, which is use a real Bible. A one that has pages. Because if you're like me, if I use this as my Bible during prayer time and during devotional time, um, I'm getting notifications. You're getting notifications. It's distracting. So you've got to find ways to build in where you avoid mental drift. In fact, this great quote by John Piper, he says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. I'm just going to let that sit there in the room for a second and convict all of us. In fact, you know what? I want to ask you to do me a favor. Get your phone out right now. I want you to take a photo of that quote, right? Seriously, get your phone out, take a photo of that quote, zoom in nice and big, and get a photo of that quote and put it on your phone. And here's what I want you to do with that quote from your phone. The irony will be amazing, is I want you to put that out on social media right now, all right? And your friends are going to be looking at that going, okay, he said that's a really hard quote to read. And my friend tweeted this out. Hypocrite, right? They're using Twitter to tweet out that quote. But it will also be, I think, 
great for us to reflect on. So um, this is up to you, but I encourage you. Uh, very, very convicting thought. The next thing D.A. Carson says, he says, seek out people more mature than you who pray. Seek out people that, that can mentor you in this area of your life. The next thing he says, he says, mix praise, confession, intercession together, and tie your request to Scripture. One of the best things for you and I to do is be reading Scripture and tie that into your prayer life where you read something and you go, I want to praise God about this passage right here and, and what I read in this one verse. And you just pray and you talk to Him. There's confession. There's praise. There is intercession, praying for other people. If you're like me, many of us think, you know, I have a hard time knowing what to pray for. Well, here's, these three things should keep us pretty busy, I think. Praise, confession, intercession. And then last thing he says, pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. All of us, we enter into prayer and we just, we're like, we're not really praying yet. We have to get into it to really get into it. You get the idea. So after um, all this talk about prayer, I want you guys to do one thing. Um, For the sake of time this morning, I'm going to keep things in here. Instead of doing breakouts, I'm going to keep things in here. So let's do the first two questions at your tables. Uh, your first two discussion questions, and then we'll come back here to verse 16 in a moment. Just questions one and two. All right, like always, we've got to move. So look down at verse 16. We'll pick up again in verse 16. So even after all this talk about prayer, James is not done. So look at verse 16. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So most of us, I think, understand this concept of confessing our sins to God. But what about confessing our sins to each other? That's a tough one, right? That's a really tough one. But So James says, confess your sins to each other. So part of repentance is that you confess your sins to some of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, not all. You don't broadcast it from a stage unless you're called to be a pastor. Then you broadcast your sin from a stage. But no one's asking you to tell everyone, but to tell, to tell you confess to some people, this is what I struggle with. Some people that you trust. You confess your sin to other people. So if you and I are part of the body of Christ and we're connected through Christ then my sin affects you, and your sin affects me. If if we're connected in the body of Christ, then our sin, or your sin, or my sin, affects the entire body. So it's a good idea to let, for the hand to let the know, let the head know kind of what's going on. It's a good idea for the body of believers to let, um, let other people in the body of Christ know what's happening in your mind, your heart, and your soul, and even in your actions. This does not mean that you go snooping around. You notice the action here. It does not say, here, um, go find out someone's sin on your own. No, it says confess. That means you, the person you're struggling, you confess your sin to people that you trust. It says confess. That means you do it. This is, I think, all part of repentance. A while back, uh, there were several people that came to me at different points of last this past school year and said, hey man, I'm struggling with some stuff. 
I need you to help me kind of walk through this. And so we began praying and walking through some of that. And we brought up um, the theme of, of impact camp was brokenness. And many of you were just saying like, hey, I'm struggling with certain sin issues. I need some help. I need, some, I need to confess this to people um, that I know and trust. And I was really, really encouraged by that. But what often happens whenever people begin to feel this need to confess sin, which is a good thing, um, we tend to start using the word, the phrase, um, accountability partner. You know, I need an accountability partner. And I understand why we use that, that phrase. I understand. I used to do the same thing. But I actually don't like that expression because it sort of limits what we're talking about here. Um, I really think you just need some friends that you can be accountable to. Let, let's kind of rephrase it. Let's just say, I need, some friend, I need some friends that I can be accountable to and confess my sin to. Um, we say accountability partner that's a bit of an awkward invitation to someone, right? Um, it's almost like, just imagine you're walking up to your friend, you're like, hey, uh, I know we don't know each other that well, but um, want to be my accountability partner? And the person's like a new believer, they're like, what, 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 what is that, right? Like some of you guys do your like promposals, where you have the sign outside the house, can you imagine that? Like, your friend wakes up in the morning, you're outside, like, accountability partner, question mark. Hey, what do you think? You and me. It's just awkward, right? So, you just need some friends that you can be accountable to. And yes, it might be good to say to your friend, um, hey, uh, like, let's talk about our struggles. Like, that's a good thing, right? Um. Here's how I would define a friend. A friend is someone you can be transparent with. Pretty simple. A friend is someone you can be transparent with, open about stuff. That's a friend. You can share things with this person, good and bad. And if you're someone that's never really all that open about your life, then I would say you don't know what real friendship is then. You don't know what real friendship looks like yet. You don't have real friends until you can be open and transparent about things with that person. So we confess our sins to each other. But this doesn't mean when you confess your sins that you also confess everyone else's sins. So this does not mean that you go, hey, can um, we meet at Starbucks and talk about some stuff? I'm really struggling. And you get there and you just share, can you believe that he said this and she said this and she did this and she did that? And then at the end of that hour, you're like, yeah, so I need some prayer about all that. I'm just really struggling right now with all of what I just told you. Like, it's not confessing. It's like, this is what I'm struggling with. So not only do we need to confess to each other, we also need to be the kind of person that others are comfortable confessing to. So what kind of person do you picture someone who is is makes it easy for other people to confess things to you. What image comes to your mind when you think of that kind of person? Then I want you to look down at um, verse 17. He seems to switch gears, but it's not really a gear shift. It's something different. But look at verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So at first, we're like, wait, what? 
Elijah, rain, what, what's he talking about? So Elijah is this Old Testament prophet who did some great miracles of which I can't really get into right now. But James is focusing not on the miracles of Elijah, but the prayers of Elijah in this passage. So he's talking about um, Elijah was a prophet to Israel. Israel was ruled by an evil king named Ahab at the time. The people rebelled against God, and Elijah spoke out against those people. And he prayed for drought because he wanted the people to repent. And so they got drought. Then he prayed for rain, and it actually rained. And the point here is that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And I know most of us, we, don't, we struggle with prayer. We don't pray at all. We don't think it's going to make any difference. And I want to you remember the quote I gave you earlier. Why you pray will determine how you pray. You and I don't think prayer is going to be effective, so we just don't, we don't pray. And you remember earlier in the book, James says the quote, he says, you don't have because you do not ask God. You don't have because you do not ask God. I want you to watch this video from several years back. It's an advertisement for an airline company, and we'll discuss it after. Let's go ahead and watch this video. Twas a night before Christmas, and all across the land, the good folks of WestJet had a miracle planned. On the eve before flying, the guests were in their beds. Visions of traveling danced in their heads. While out on the runway, something secret had arrived. It was left in the lounge. It was a Christmas surprise. Is that Cohen? <laughs> what are you looking for Christmas this year, Cohen? A choo-choo train? Ho, ho, ho! A classic! Do you like Thomas? <laughs> and what would Mommy and Daddy like for, for Christmas? Big TV. Yeah, big TV. Ho, ho, ho! A big TV! You're looking fabulous! Oh, I need to. It's okay if you just want to stare at me as well. <laughs> what I need is uh, new socks and underwear. An Android tablet. Is that William beside you? And Cameron? <laughs> Some Santa boots. While the guests told their Christmas wishes to good old St. Nick, West Jetters took notes and got ready to shop quick. It was a great rush with the two flights in the air to get all those presents. Not a moment to spare. The same bells ring and those children sing it tonight. The lights are bright and I know it's a beautiful sight. The snowflakes fall in the world and snowy and white. Santa's coming to town. Thanks for flying with us at WestJet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of your flight. Happy 
Everything ready, we all had to wait for the moment of truth at Carousel 8. expected what they'd asked of St. Nick would actually appear. It was all quite a trick. A West Cheddar would say it was more than mere fun. Miracles do happen when we all work as one. We'll give Santa the last word on this most special night. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good flight. So when you watch that um, some people, I want you to think beyond like the materialistic world, but when, when you watch that commercial, some people ask for big things, the plasma TV, um, back when plasmas were cool, uh, and, or someone, a guy asked for underwear and socks. I mean, how bad does that guy feel now, right? He's like, are you serious? Really? But you have to imagine that in his response, there was this lack of belief. Like, this isn't even a serious question, so I'm just going to say underwear and socks, whatever. He walks off, and then they bring it. So how often do you and I approach God in this way? Again, not thinking materialistically, thinking spiritually speaking. Um, How often do you and I ask God for big things? Right? God, there are people that I know who don't know you. I'm praying for these people. I'm coming before you asking you for big things, for you to accomplish big things in our life as a church, in my life as a person. And so I think sometimes you and I are like the guy asking for underwear and socks, and God wants to be like, hey, no, like you need to ask for bigger things than this. Um, you need to ask for more, for me to do more in your life in this way. So James, I think, does not want us making the same mistake um, prayer is not just a nice gesture, but it's, it is a, it's powerful and effective. God wants you to use prayer as a powerful and effective tool in your life. 
And so um, look at verse 19. We'll close up with verse 19. It says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I could spend an entire sermon on this one passage, but I'm going to give you like 30 seconds. Um, This ties into the Elijah story because Elijah was trying to bring the people to repentance. So if somebody wanders away from Christ, what is our role? Our role is to pursue them, go after them, and try to bring them back to repentance. If your brother or sister in Christ is wandering off, it's not just their problem. It's our problem. A guy named Sam Albury says this. He says, we must, we must not tell ourselves that it is just the role of the pastor or leader. If the wanderer is a Christian brother or sister and you know it is happening, then it is your responsibility to call them back. So this is not just my role. This is also your role in the body is that we care for each other enough to pursue someone who's walking away from Christ. Um, it's really late, guys. I would recommend that you maybe do like two more questions and then be done. So go ahead and discuss your last couple questions.